I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And folks, we have a special one today. In the sport of triathlon, a living legend, a conversation like no other, the one and only Greg Bennett, one of the best triathletes in the history of the sport and the second best triathlete in his family. A wonderful example of a professional triathlete transitioning to build a successful business, all with a wealth of perspective on everything performance. Today, Greg and I dig into his background and journey as an athlete, including the role of his family and parents in his pursuit of excellence. We dig into important lessons for all endurance athletes going on their journey, the role and importance of coaching and how different coaches suited different parts of his own journey, as well as lessons of starting a business and being fearless in any endeavor that you set your mind to. It is a treasure trove of lessons. And fasten your seatbelt, because along the way, we get some wonderful stories and insights from Greg. This is, in all honesty, one of my favorite discussions that I've had as a part of this show. And I don't think either Greg or myself can quite believe that we only got to know each other over the last couple of months. Folks, it's a fun one. It's also pretty long. And so what we're going to do is we're going to bypass word of the week this week, and we are not going to do, ooh, the bleeding ick are you. Instead, we're just going to do a very quick squatty update because, hmm, well, we've got a wonderful public service announcement for you, and then we're going to get going with the meat and potatoes. So... Let's first do a squatty update. And with that, a quick and dirty on the squatty update, because I want to give you a really quick reminder of our upcoming free webinar, May the 25th. And it is all about fall racing or for the Europeans, autumn racing. Because it's been a season like no other, and in the fall this year, we have a blizzard of racing coming up. And so, of course, it's imperative that you build the right mindset and set of strategies so that you can ensure success. And we at Purple Patch want to help you. And so my job is to lead the lessons in the education. Yours, well, all you've got to do is join and then ask all of the questions that you have. If you cannot attend live, do not fret. Don't worry, because once you register at the link at the show notes, you can just head there. We are going to send you a recording of the session as it stands. Now, if you have friends racing in the fall, absolutely feel free to invite them. Whether they're training for triathlons or marathons or bike races or snail racing, very competitive, I hear. This session isn't just for Purple Patch athletes. It is for everybody that wants to improve. But a word of warning, what we are going to do is cap this session. We want to ensure that everyone attending has a chance to ask their own question. And so we're going to seal it off as soon as we reach our capacity. So I would get online. I would register as quickly as you can. Head to the Purple Patch social channels or, of course, the show notes in this hereby mentioned show, and we can get you registered today. Feel free to share, as I mentioned. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to get cracking. 
Now, before we move into the meat and potatoes, I want to give you a little bit of insight into our guest, Greg Bennett. So firstly, he is the owner and founder of Bennett Endurance. He runs Bennett Endurance along with his wife, Laura. As a side note, that is the best athlete in the family. And the company itself is a high-performance consulting company for both individuals and teams. Greg's also the host of the popular Greg Bennett Show. It's a great podcast and it's focused all around high performance. You will see many of the legends of the triathlon sport in there, but also broader afield, many doctors and different scientists and people that can contribute to the world of performance. In fact, even me, little me, was lucky enough to be a recent guest of the show. So now today we get to reverse roles and I get to be the one asking all the questions, Greg in the hot seat. Beyond business, well, what you know him for best. He has a rich history at the very highest level of triathlon. He is a two-time Olympian. Twice he was the ITU World Series champion, the 2011 non-drafting world champion. He has over 100 race wins goodness me, think about that, all in a career that spanned around 30 years. He remains, to this day, an inspiration for anyone that knows anything about this sport that we love. And so, without further ado, welcome to the discussion with the great Greg Bennett. Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Meat and Potatoes. <music> All right, folks, it is indeed the meat and potatoes. And today, well, as I talked about earlier, we have a living legend in the sport of triathlon. Welcome to the show, Greg Bennett. A living legend. I don't know about that, but I appreciate the introduction, mate. Good to see you. Well, as, 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 I, said, uh, as I said before, we, we went live uh, Laura Bennett is very well known in the Dixon family, but they'd never heard of you. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, I, I take that as a real compliment. It's uh, when we're down in Florida, it's always like I'm Laura Bennett's husband. You know, actually, they go by a maiden name down there. I'm Laura Reback's husband, and I'm like, oh well, you know, I've married a good one. That's all that means. <laughs> you, that, that's all that means. Well, um, we, th there are so many pro athletes that get interviewed and uh, go through and sometimes bring some really interesting stuff. Our discussion today, I hope, is going to go well beyond you and your sport. Uh, we're going to anchor around the sport, but hopefully really go out to some lessons in broader life and, and obviously now as a, as a businessman, ultimately. But to get going, I think that it's really nice, same as we always do with with all of our guests on this show, I want to understand your very humble beginning. So why don't you give the listeners just a little bit of a flavor of your family, where you grew up and uh, schooling, perhaps just the very basics like that. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Sydney in a suburb called Mossman, which is on the harbor in Sydney. Uh, very fortunate to some degree. It's a nice place in the world you know, to be brought up. I had an older brother who's about two and a half years older than me, and he's the athlete of the family. Uh, he had all the speed, the power. He played professional rugby in the UK and France for a number of years post high school. Um, and somebody that I just always tried to keep up to, you know, it just, I wanted to play professional rugby. I wanted to be a rugby player, but, you know, I just didn't grow, you know. And I remember being at, I was at a, a nice school in Sydney called Newington. It's a private school in Sydney and, and rowing and rugby were the two big sports. 
And I come from a sports mad family. I don't mm-hmm. ever remember a weekend or even weeknights where sport wasn't on TV. And I'm talking about when TV only had four or five channels, you know, in the 70s and 80s there. But sport was always on, and whether it be Olympics or rugby or whatever. And uh, I think that was almost in our DNA that it was likely we would follow sport as a career path. Um, I'd never heard of triathlon uh, until I was 14, 15 in the mid-80s. And uh, it was kind of by accident. I I fell into that world. A couple of mates invited me in uh, and said, Greg, can you do the run? You know, you're a runner at school. And I was never a great runner. I never won a high, I never run a race at high school. You know, I was not wow. talented. I I mean, I was at a tough high school to be competitive at. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the guy winning school was winning the state. You know, it was a definite. But still, I never won. Um, so I went off to do this race in Nepean, Western Sydney, this triathlon. And uh, when we got there, the guy that was meant to do the swim had a bit of an asthma attack. And they said, well, Greg, you surf a little bit and you can swim a little bit. Why don't you, know, you do, jump in quickly do the swim for us? Like, All right. So I did the swim, came out, came out of the, you know, the water in about second last and uh, really long way. It was an 800-meter swim. And that's a long, long way if you've never really been in the pool training or anything. Absolutely. But, yeah. but, I, but I tagged the guy, and uh, my mate, and uh, he went off, did the bike, and then I took off for the run, and uh, I treated it like an 800-meter track run, but it was a 14-kilometer run. This is in the day when all the distances were different. You know, in the 80s, mm-hmm. there was no mm-hmm. certain distance to triathlon. And, but anyway, I, I, I did blow to pieces, but I got through it. I got through the 14-kilometer run, and, and that was that Christmas, you know, just after that race, uh, I got a bike um, and then entered, a, I think, the Wollongong Triathlon or something in the early, I think that was early 87. Um, and it was almost like an addiction. It just grabbed me. I found my place because being in high school where rowing and rugby were the two big sports and I was tiny. I was I was made a coxswain in rowing. You know, I was a, the under 50 kilogram <laughs> guy down the back of the boat. Um but it was also during that rowing I realized I could run okay because I could beat the, you know, I was the coxswain to the older older guys and, mm-hmm. um, and I could beat them in training. I was like, oh, maybe I'm an okay runner. But it was really the sport grabbed hold of me pretty young and I found my place. You know, in those adolescent years, it's you're just trying to fit in. You're just trying to find where, where do you fit in. And I didn't fit in my, in my high school. Um, loved my sports. 13 E's in rugby, 14 E's in rugby. It did go down a few more teams than that. I mean, but but I never got into the A's and B's and C's. You know, my brother's playing first 15 rugby in year 11 and then year 12. And I just, it, it occurred to me I'd never be that guy. Uh, nor did I have the courage to tackle huge men yeah. that were running at me that he did. So, you know, that was that's kind of a brief to me, sports mad family, kind of tiny in school trying to find my way and, and found triathlon. Um, that was do, it. Do you think that, do you think that because many, many listeners won't know this, but I think uh, triathlon in the late eighties and into the nineties had a very different standing position in Australia than it did for most of the world really. Yeah. It, it, it was like, do you think that that was fortuitous that you found this sport in a place that there were, yeah, everything from sort of surf life-saving type mm. stuff that you guys had down there to triathlon. It was, what was the runway set to that, to, to, to be that? And then second question, follow up to that, just so you do it is how serious, how young were you when you really sort of turned 
the the motivation into and love into being really serious in the sport yeah i think you know uh i'm trying to remember the book but they talk about work plus talent plus opportunity um excuse me listeners <laughs> it will come to me later in the show but it's a great book and it, and that was my career to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. I had some talent. I had some ability. I'm not going to deny it. I had a little bit, you know, I could, I had mates that were doing the sport, but I tend to advance a little quicker than they did. So I, had, I did have some ability. I was incredibly passionate about it. And so I was prepared to do the work. Um, but I also, touching on what you just said, I had tremendous opportunity. And that opportunity was, you know, in the late 80s, there were races all up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia, you know, where Tari, Kempsey, Port Macquarie, it just, you could race every weekend over a summer. Every little club had a triathlon and they Mm. were simply put on. There was nothing fancy about them, but they were, you got to race. Then, um, you know, through my university years, it was still, I, I, I was able to keep racing and I remember, you know, I'm racing Miles Stewart, who was the 91 world champion. I was racing him nearly every weekend. So I was racing somewhat the world's best every time I got to race. But then 94, 1994 was the big change for Australians my age. Um, Chris McCormack, Craig Alexander, Craig Walton. We all came through this development program called the Grand Prix Triathlon Series. And the Grand Prix was a professional series in Australia, live television, uh, big money, you know, even to the point you'd be fined if you were late to a meeting or late to a briefing or if you were late to a start line. It was, it was a real baptism of fire to becoming a professional. It was, yep. you know, I remember qualifying for that series and uh, it was a big deal to qualify and I managed to get in. Uh, but, you know, we were sponsored by Hugo Boss Clothing. We were, you know, Burger King. It was this real... We're not just a country town racing series anymore. We are taking on cricket and the big sports of the world, or Australia anyway. And, uh, you know, but I got to race those summers from 94 for the next sort of almost 10 years. I would race five to seven times in a summer, or let's call it five to seven events, but each event had three super sprint races. So you're coming out of a summer with 20 races under your belt. And every time I got to race, I got to race a Greg Welsh, who was a world champion. I got to race a Miles Stewart, who was a world champion. I got to race Brad Bevan, who was probably one of the greatest uh, athletes of the 90s that I don't think any of us talk about enough. Yeah. And I wasn't beating them, but I was humanizing them. They became, they weren't, I didn't, I wasn't paralyzed when I was on the start line with these guys after a number of years. And so by 97, you know, that's when I started winning World Cups. So, when you ask, you know, when did I go all in or when did I pull the trigger, I guess, into my career, 94 was my final year of university, but it was also the year that I qualified for that series. It was the first year that I made a world championship team in Wellington, New Zealand. So 94 for me was a big year in terms of like, okay, I'm going to give this sport a good go. Um, mm-hmm. And look, it wasn't all smooth sailing. I had all sorts of injuries in that early period because I overdid it and uh, I didn't know how to train. Nobody really did. and. Um, but it was that 94 year, I think, was, was really key. It, it, it's, it's really interesting, I think, a point as you sort of think about the way the sport is set up now. But if, if you go back, you had this organic in some ways, but incredibly simple environment to learn, to make mistakes, to mm-hmm. fail. And then at the same time had a, 
visceral understanding of what the level was mm-hmm. and um and, and it was almost like this hobby that at the same time you could absolutely grow to the level with just repeated 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 racing pro- probably just training to race training to race training to race and it was probably a joy and 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 emotionally practically physically you had a, a treasured sort of bank account of experience that you could probably draw on for the rest of what you know then fast forward let's say five years eight years or whatever you probably still drew on that those experiences were probably the making of greg bennett in many ways would you agree with that Sounds oh I, I think you articulate it far better than i just did <laughs> but exactly <laughs> that i i um I'm a big advocate, especially in your youth and, you know, call it early 20s and and getting into it, that the experience of racing and racing often, even if you're not 100% prepared, and getting to race the best and knowing where the best was every weekend, oh, wow, that that is truly treasured. Um, And I think you, you know, for listeners that know Chris McCormack, um, I think you'll hear both of us often talk about that experience in the 90s. I don't think Chris qualified until about 95 or 96, but it was that same sort of process. And so by the time we were finishing our racing in Australia and we're heading on to the World Cup scene, now called the World Triathlon Series, we were 15 to 20 races into a year, racing the best. And I remember racing the races in Japan and the early European ones. And you jump off the bike and it'd be the 10 guys that had been racing in the Grand Prix in Australia, running head to head. And the rest of the world were trying to play catch up. And, you know, my wife, Laura, recognized that. And so she brought herself to Australia in 97, 98 to race the Grand Prix. The world was going to Australia. For me, it was in my backyard. Um, It's changed for Australians now. They don't have the racing. they got to go to Europe. they got to, you know, it's a different kind of setup. But for me, again, it comes back to that, that word opportunity. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. So, so I want to go back a little bit because that's, that's the triathlon arm of your development. At the same time, it's not like you dropped out of school at 15 and, uh, and said, I'm going to pursue this. Uh, so how did you manage your education relative to this amazing journey? Was it just integrated and that's what you were doing and that was the backbone of life sort of thing? Well, it was a bit, honestly, when I finished high school, um, my grades were moderate. They weren't, I was an exceptional student. Again, I think the the family motto was almost sport first and academic second to some degree. It wasn't so much that, but it felt like that almost growing up. Um, and then I decided, well, I better go study. And this thing called computers seemed to be coming around a lot. Um, in school, they started popping up. We had a computer room coming up. And, and I thought, well, I should learn something about this. I think computers could be something. So I actually went and did computer programming when I left high school. And it was a business program, but with a computer programmers. Um, Hated it for the first year or so. But I come from a very disciplined family um, where we'd start every year writing our goals for the year. From the age of six, seven, eight, my dad and mum and dad, we'd all sit down and we'd all share. And uh, it's funny, I really disliked it as a kid, you know, summer holidays in Australia and you'd all have to sit down, you know, New Year's Eve and write out your goals and share them with the family and put a timeline on them and do all of those things that we, we, we know about. And, and that was very much my dad and his influence. And uh, so I grew up very, very disciplined. Um, and I took that through into the university, even I was doing something I didn't truly love. But then I realized as I went through that degree that 
the rational thinking that programming requires is what I was missing. I'm quite an emotional, passionate man, mm. and I needed that rational, logical thinking. And anybody that's done any form of programming will tell you, you skip a line of code in a thousand lines of a, an accounting software package that you're trying to design or something, man, that's it. It requires logic. And that's, mm. so it was a very useful thing to learn at a young age without realizing I needed it. Um, finished, that, finished that and went on and did a, you know, a sports marketing degree. So I was, I was at school for a while. But in Australia, you know, I wasn't, it's not like the US where you represent NCAA sports and do all that kind of thing. In Australia, it was I had my university over there and my sporting career over here. And so with the sporting career during that time, little bits of money started trickling in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I was working at Sizzler. For anybody that knows, it was a, a chain of steak restaurants that was big in Australia with the salad bar and everything else. And I was working at Sizzler <laughs> two to three days a week and, you know, trying to make ends meet. And, and I think I was making about $150 a week working 10 to 15 hours, whatever it was. I remember racing this race in Bankstown. It was called the Australian Duathlon Cup. So it was a run, bike, run. And I won it. And this must have been 91 or 92. Um, so it was maybe 20, 19, 20, and it was $1,500 worth of cash. Oh, my goodness. I've never, it, for me, I just did the math and said, that's like 10 weeks work at Sizzler. And it was such a, it was a moment where you thought, I love what I'm doing. I'm not doing it for the money, but boy, isn't that nice, <laughs> you know, if you can perform. And, uh, and so those little bits that came along the way while I was studying, um, were tremendous. And even when I was back home in Sydney uh, studying their sports marketing, mum and dad let me leave with them, but we had a system where I'd pay rent and we'd all share the bills and and that kind of thing. Um, and so it was great. I'd, I'd get these checks every now and then and just give them to mum and dad and say, you know, thanks for letting me stay at your house because I'm a 19-year-old man, 20-year-old man. And I was very much brought up when you're 18, you're a man and you either leave or you contribute to the house. And uh, I, I, I think looking back, I, I think that was a really great way to approach it too because it, it suddenly made everything matter a little bit more in terms of my career at that time as well. Um, so so uh, and before I ask this question, by the way, the very first – so I came across to the States in 92 and I, I'm going <laughs> to – and I arrived – here I was, never been to the US before, had no idea what I was what I was doing. But I was coming across to swimming college, and the very first restaurant that I got taken to was this amazing place called Sizzler. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is incredible. You mean it's limitless? You mean I can go out? <laughs> it's, it's, my whole world is limitless. Welcome to America. <laughs> oh no. Um, I, I, I want to ask a question, and you can you can tell me to shut up, and we'll move along. But uh, but there, there is an opening here, so uh, so this might be over the edge of personal. You say this, but parents, you, you talked about the structure, the goals with your parents and your family. Your brother went on to be really successful in rugby. You obviously, as as all the listeners know, went on to be incredibly successful in the world of triathlon. Um, you mentioned there about the goals and discipline, uh, and and touched on that with your parents as a parent now uh, there is I'm sure you're finding out the healthy tension the challenge of being setting structure and uh, and the importance of discipline etc so that you can be the wind in uh, beneath the sails of uh, of your kids 
or, or of course, putting too much pressure on your kids. Now, mm -hmm. you were successful, but as a child, how did you feel on that? Did you feel like uh, you were operating under pressure or was it more wind under the sails? Oh, ne never under pressure and never for a moment. The, I, all I clearly remember from mum and dad always saying is if there's an opportunity out there in the world, take it. They were very much about letting us follow our dream. They never questioned me to be a triathlete. You know, I've come over to the US and I often hear other family members or other people talking about, what are you doing? You need to get an education, get a job, you know, you know this kind of structured way of living. And as much as my discipline sounds like it was structured, it was like, no, be disciplined. If you want to play soccer this year, you're going to turn up and you what do you want to do? Try your best. It yeah. would be my choice when I write my goals. There was never, and if, you know, it's the same with my math grades. That would be a part of the goals. You know, you got math this year and you got physics or biology, whatever. What are you aiming to do in those? And it taught me very early to be realistic and somewhat optimistic with my goal setting. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you write your goal and you review them at the end of the year. And uh, so it became a, no, I think it, it what it did is it, allowed me to take ownership of my life at a younger age. And, and I think yeah. that that was you know, very empowering. It, it's incredible because you, the, the U.S. particularly, and, and I am a U.S. citizen now, so I can um, have a bit more license to talk about this, but there is this, and it happens in Britain, so, I, so it's not U.S. specific, but parents are trying to predetermine the, the mm. route of where their kids are going. And in sports, that ends up often putting the end of uh, the intrinsic motivation that I think is important. So uh, that, that's why I asked the question. I, I, I agree with you, Ender. And, and look, as, like you said, as I have two young kids now and, you know, of course I want my 16-year-old girl to be winning the US Open tennis. <laughs> you know, she's three now, but when she turns 16. Yeah. I mean, of course, you'd love that kind of thing, but that's, not, that's your dream and that's not what's right for them. And, um, you know, I think what you want to give them is the tools so they can optimize the lives that they want you know and that's you're just trying to create that that tool belt for them so they're ready to go and then when they're 18 they're on their own and you know it's one of the things we talk about with you know i find a lot of parents under pressure at sending their kids to college here and you know it, it's in the u.s anywhere upwards hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollars for a four-year degree now if my daughter comes to me and says dad when she's 18 dad i really want to be an engineer tell you what we'll, we'll try and figure it out you know, we'll, between her and I, we'll, we'll figure it out and let's get you to the right college and figure it out. If she's at 18 and she's, I don't really know what I want to do. Maybe I'll go to college. Well, then go figure it out, right? I mean, that's yeah. not, at 18, if I've done my job right, which I hope I can, <laughs> <laughs> the, the goal is that you're mature enough um, to, to go and explore the world. And uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to let my kids end up on the street by any means. But it is that and you're always welcome home. But I do want you to go out and see the world and see what you can add to the world. Mm -hmm. um, one other question that something you mentioned with your, your uh, going back. Uh, I, I knew, by the way, as we were having this discussion, I've, I've got a whole list of questions. And then I've realized that we were just going to go down a bunch of rabbit holes. <laughs> I, should, I shouldn't have even prepared anything. I should have just <laughs> gone with the conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, should have, I should have just written down, hello, Greg. And then we would have seen where it went because uh, this is where we're at. But we, we're, we're going to hold hands and do it together. So. Uh, you, you mentioned the logic side of your brain with computer programming. I'm, I'm interesting whether now in retrospect, whether going down that journey 
whether that helped you as an athlete in any way, and 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 it might not have been on a day to day emotional within racing, but maybe with either planning or perspective or anything, was that training your brain in many ways on that side? Do you, do you feel like that had any impact on you as an athlete? Oh, definitely. I think uh, what I've noticed actually with a lot of the athletes, um, even that I've had on my show or that I competed against is sport and endurance sport is quite mathematical. Now, whether you're into a lot of data, and you and I spoke about it on my show a bit, you know, data yeah. and how useful it is and too much and blah, blah, blah. And then you even mentioned you have a client who's an engineer and they really work well with data, right? And that's a mm-hmm. that's a logical, rational thinking brain. They, they require that. Um, but I've noticed that to be successful, a lot of the athletes in our sport have this calculating brain that can, can work out numbers under duress and fatigue. Um, you know, you're out in the lava fields of Kona or you're whatever you're doing in endurance sport, there's always a math component, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's chasing somebody down or they're hunting you, or even if it's just doing the math of how much water do I need to drink, how many calories, blah, blah, blah. It's math. It's logic. It's, it's this, this processing. This, uh, and so for me, you know, I'm an emotional athlete. I, I race with passion. I, I train with incredible passion. I've always got somebody, you know, chasing me or I'm, I'm always visualizing, I'm, I'm colorful. Um, so not only did I have my early studies that helped me with that kind of, but then I married a, a woman, <laughs> Laura Bennett, who innately has a very logical, rational brain. And so mm-hmm. together we're, we're quite a nice little yin and yang where we balance each other out, where I tend to bring that heightened arousal. It's not that she doesn't have, I'm not saying she's not passionate or emotional. I just tend to bring more of it. And she yeah. brings this, calmness and this calculating brain and so i've kind of had that throughout my athletic career whether it was in that early stages which was fantastic or later in my career in 2000 when laura and i got together and and i maybe need more of a dose of that logic and rationality the um you know it's funny i i feel like this this for listeners we could talk all day about your career, just your triathlon career, and um, and people would love to hear all of the stories and go through. And, and similar to sort of a, a really successful band that shows up and doesn't play any of their hits, I, I want to take the conversation on a different route today. And um, uh, so, so we are not going to go through your very storied career uh, in, in triathlon, apart from to acknowledge it. And uh, and and realize that it is the crucible of what today's conversation is going to be built on. But uh, staying on triathlon specifically, just for a couple of moments, I, I want to ask a couple of things because you you built the majority of your career around short course racing, non drafting and drafting, uh, sort of Olympic distance, if you want to call it that. Uh, you also went on later in your career to long course racing. And, um, and the sport has changed and evolved and grown in so many ways. Skill sets of short course and ITU races are so specialized. I'd love to hear your, your sort of um, mindset in that style of racing. Your, uh, it, in many ways, it's a chess game. You know, mm. you, it's it's so hectic, but a different check, chess game than long course racing. So. Take us back some of the characteristics, and, and I'm leading you this because I'm going to ask about those characteristics in building a business later on. It's, it's a good question. Um, I, I do look at the sport of triathlon as one, um, 
And so many of the characteristics, whether they be short course uh, that I, like you said, mentioned, I did focus on, or it's the Ironman or even longer, um, many of the characteristics are the same. There, there's an endurance, there's a, there's a, a living on the, the edge that you take yourself and you just got to hold it there. And there's a suffering component to that that I think is almost, and this is sound weird, but it's almost addictive, right? Mm -hmm. Take yourself to that edge. I think the, the big difference when we analyze a short course kind of athlete mindset over an Ironman, it is far less about what you can do. Like Ironman is all about you. And you're constantly yep. intrinsic. You're constantly going, I need more calories. Is my pace right? Is my heart rate right? Is it? Whereas the short course athlete is what's going on around me and then coming back in. What's going on around me? Coming back in. Can I do something here? Is it, um, so it's this kind of outward, inward that you, you're focusing on. I think the races where I was the most prepared and maybe came in this will sound a bit arrogant and I don't mean it, but knowing I was going to win, you know, like I had this, I had the weapons in my arsenal and, and it was up to me to almost lose the race if I didn't deliver what I knew I had is a different mindset than going, you know, how do I beat Alistair, Alistair Brownlee or Javier Gomez, you know, that are on top of the game? Like there you're chasing and it's a different kind of mindset. And so for me, every short course race offered something different. What I would tend to do, though, is often if I was preparing for a Minneapolis in July, you know, and it's a big money race or whatever, well, that preparation would start a good 10 months before and it would figure out the kind of who are the players, what's the course, what's the temperature, how am I going to win? Every program was figured out how am I going to win, not how am I going, not how am I going to get fit, not how am I going to be a player, how am I going to be first across the line and what is it going to take? And that I got better at as I got older. Um, mm -hmm. I think in my early first 10 years of my career, I probably had a winning rate of about 8%. I think I did the math at, which is not a lot, but it was enough. But I was fairly consistent. I had a lot of podiums and, and top fives, but winning wasn't a thing that I did often. And then there was a real shift in sort of 05 um, post-Olympic Games where I sort of changed more from the draft legal, the ITU draft legal sense, which... I'd, I'd done and been reasonably successful to focusing on the the non-drafting, you know, style of racing, which is the, the full time trial type format. And that, I guess, if you look at those two differences in a non-drafting event, it becomes a little bit more about yourself and less about the comp. You know, in a in a drafting yeah. race, you're in a pack the whole time, <laughs> and so you're mm -hmm. always mm -hmm. looking and elbows out type mentality. You know, just making sure you, you're not getting pushed and shoved non-drafting olympic we start to shift away from that a little bit where there's still going to be making sure you don't get caught in the draft and there's other people around you and, and there's a different game going on but the game changes and then the game obviously changes again when you go to 70.3 or the half distance to ironman but i really feel like the the mental approach is, is dependent on the race you're getting ready for and whether you're there to win or whether you're there to try and just make up the number you know it's like a Trying to figure out exactly how it is. Um, it's very different. But I think, I don't know if I've answered your question there um, or if you want to dive in a bit deeper. But for me, it was, I enjoyed the short course racing because that was my natural talent, yep. and passion. And I enjoyed the energy of being around others and that real shoulder to shoulder and trying to outplay, outwit, um, doing things that are uncomfortable 
But again, a lot of that is in Iron Man as well. So it's it's hard to say. No, I think it does. It's interesting because a few times in, in Iron Man racing, we we talk a lot about the ultimate pursuit being about uh you testing your body, you focus. So it's a very internal focused and, mm. and how can you can deliver that? At the same time, when it does come to the world-class level with some of the athletes I've coached, male and female, I remember having a lot of conversations with Meredith Kessler coaching her, uh, who was on this trajectory of growth therapy and piano. And, and in fact, two of your countrymen, Tim Reed and Sam Appleton, I'm going back into my closet of memories of, of early in their careers when I was coaching them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I'm right with it being Tim of saying you, you need to learn how to win. Mm-hmm. Interest. And that was at half Ironman distance before he'd step, stepped up. Uh, a, a lot of consistent performances around podium, but how do you actually learn how to win? And of course, then he, he really learned how to win when he became world champion. But, mm-hmm. but that was a, a, a psychological shift that, uh, that occurred there. So it's, uh, it's very, very interesting. Um, I want to jump ahead because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm so eager to get to the transition to the second part of your life. So we're going to fast through it for the through the long call stuff and go towards the end of your career. So I've got to coach many athletes, and one of the things, one of the components of that I'm probably most proud of as a as a coach is my opportunity to coach athletes long term. And uh, Sarah Piano, who I just mentioned, 10 years, Jesse Thomas, 10 years. So these athletes that went through aspiration to success to then getting close or transitioning out of the sport. I have seen and, and helped many athletes towards the end of the sport. The transition to the end can be incredibly tough. You had a career that was more than 30 years, basically. Mm-hmm. So how was that transition for you? Was it was it tough? I'd be lying if I said it was easy. I, I think it was, I was very fortunate that I was able to retire on my own terms, mm-hmm. that I could reflect on my career and go, I got everything out of myself. I have zero regrets. I optimized my potential beyond what I ever thought possible. If you'd asked me when I was 17, if I could have had the career that I had, you know, you can have the career that was laid out in front of you or different, I'd, I'd say I'd take it. 99% yep. of the time, right? Obviously, there's a couple of world titles I'd love to have, uh, you know, different things I'd love to add. But so that made the process of the, the concept of do I need to keep trying to go out and prove myself or find more out of myself in a physical performance way in the sport or even emotional or mental. Um, no, I didn't need to do that. The transition became difficult when you've lived a life of purpose and then there's a void. The purpose and a life of purpose is a, is really truly a life well lived, and mm-hmm. that's why we often hear. And that doesn't mean finding a life of passion. Uh, to me, purpose is aligning your your passion with your talents and strengths, and then going all in and understanding it's going to be very very difficult at times, and you're going to hit rock bottom many many times. But to have that purpose is the emptiness that I felt, and you know it's now five years on, and I can. I can quite happily say I'm finally there where I have, I don't have that emptiness. I don't have that, that hole that needs to be filled that, um, but it definitely, there was a hole more for me, you know, Laura and I retired at the same time. Her career was almost as long as mine and she moved on a little quicker. She became a mother 
and her purpose mm-hmm. changed immediately. Now, look, I became yeah. a dad as well, but there's, there's still, it's a little different. Uh, the mother, mm-hmm. the breastfeeding, the whole process, it's, and if, that's probably the greatest pur- purpose, I believe, in my own world. I think it's the greatest purpose any woman can ever have. And I, I, I think Laura's embraced that um, even more than her athletic career. She's found a bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think for us guys, I think the purpose becomes where do I feel valued? Where am I contributing to the world? Um, and there's, and, and we, we approach it more from, I did read an article and I, I should be able to reference it, but I can't for now, but they studied 5,000 UK men and 5,000 American men. And, and they said, what is the number one thing for you guys? And basically work was number one, health two, family three. And it's not to say that they didn't love their families, but if we're honest, it's a, it's a direct flip from what a woman would say. Fam, they would say, generally, again, again there's generalizations and I don't have the science or the documentation. Mm-hmm. The woman will go family, health, work. For us guys, we need to feel, again, generalized, but I, I, I need to find the study. And if I can find it, I'll send it to you. But No, 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 I get it. But I get what you, yep, the, 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 So there's this thing where you just, you want to feel like you're contributing and you feel valued in the world. And, and that work, whatever it is, is, is that. And um, I, I was struggling to find that for quite a while. And that's where the transition was tough. And fortunately, even if it's just doing some, I was doing a little bit of con- coaching. I moved it over to consulting, which was more just, you know, helping professional athletes, executives, whatever, with talking through things. And then it was uh, the podcast. I've enjoyed that immensely. Um, mm-hmm. just feeling like you're a part of something, you're a part of other people's journeys, you're, you become a storyteller. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're sharing people's journey and their history, much like you. I, I, and for me, that felt a, just something that I needed. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, it's my health and family, you know, that, that are there or thereabouts right there. And, uh, you know, now I'm a 49-year-old man and I feel like finally, okay, I'm there. But it wasn't quick. Um, nor did I try to rush it, nor, and nor did I panic about it. I wasn't concerned either. So I, wasn't, I just knew that, that it was going to be a process and I, I accepted it. I think uh, one of the elements you're really uh, circling around there is identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, because as an athlete, you really have an identity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and in many ways, there's a, there's a shift of identity there. You know? So... Um, uh, I'd, I'd love you to go a little deeper on that, how you sort of, you almost had to retire from your identity. Is that a fair enough way of saying it? Yeah, I think the, the problem with a lot of it is, and Laura is very good at this, but you know, be careful to believe in what everybody else says about you. Mm-hmm. And you see it, especially with whether it be movie stars and athletes or celebrities and the press or the fans build you up to be bigger than you are. And this is what re- requires a lot of deep reflection. You go, who am I? And when you start to do that, when you start to identify, what am I passionate about beyond swimming, biking, and running, or the pats on the back from you know, people saying how wonderful you are at triathlon, what do I actually love to do? What, and that's difficult when you've had your blinders on for so long and so consumed, and then saying, what are my strengths? What am I actually good at? And one of the things that Laura and I have enjoyed, and we could probably do it once or twice a year, is we often just sit down and go, I think you're great at communicating. I think you're great at you know, 
going into a room and adding energy. I think you're great at, and we go through each other's strengths, whatever they are. I think you're a great mm-hmm. caregiver. I think you're a great, and I don't think we all do that enough. It's one of the things I've said on my show a bit is I don't think we recognize great attributes in, in, in each other enough. We are very point out to weaknesses, you know. Yeah, uh, it's like, you know, I can see you sitting there, Matt, your shoulders are slashed. Sit back, mate. Rather than going, you know, geez, those glasses look good on you and you wear glasses well. Did you know that you should, whatever it is. I mean, obviously that's pretty superficial. But my point is, is that helps all of us find purpose because when you have a loved one, a close person, a friend, whoever, and you spend the time to actually recognize their strengths and their talents because then they can go about optimizing them. And I'm a true believer, if we all optimize our talents, the world's a better place. The problem is I see everybody working on their weaknesses all the time. I'm not saying we shouldn't massage and lean into our weaknesses, but I think we're all, I think the world's a better place when we all optimize our strengths. Um, and so that, that helped me a lot. It, it, it's really interesting. If I self-reflect for a couple of moments and I went through a swimming career and, um, and I got to swim at a high level, yeah, I managed to make the finals of Olympic trials and then I tried my hand at triathlon. And if, I, if I'm really honest, when I reflect a lot of, unlike I think you, I think a lot of my career or whatever you would want to call it was quite externally driven. And I think that left me, I, it, it, what it enabled me to have is an incredibly high work ethic, but I was a- almost dumb as a rock as, a, as an athlete. You know, I, I, I didn't have autonomy. I, I left my, my future just in the hands of coaches, you know, and, um, and therefore drove myself into the ground, which of course, in my case was a, knowing this podcast isn't about me, but, uh, that became the thing that when I essentially failed at triathlon because I drove myself into the ground and and finished with chronic fatigue or whatever you might like to label it, out of it emerged coaching and starting Purple Patch that actually was the the proving ground of failure so that I could reimagine and coaching gave me real purpose. Mm. Building Purple Patch, which was that there is real purpose around what I try to do hope to do now and it is without doubt internally driven uh mm. passion driven mm. and 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 i'm clearly <laughs> well i think i'm probably a better coach than i was an athlete that's for sure <laughs> uh but so that is absolutely at the crucible of, of i think my own experience i think you hit it absolutely nail on the head it's it's uh, it's fantastic mm. i i i i i see a lot of similarities in myself with what you you, you said as well it's like you you overdo it because you you want to show the world what you can do and you you mm-hmm. not it's it's we always say you know you got to listen to yourself and you got to listen to yourself and it's like it's hard when the the pats on the back are coming and and it feels wonderful and it's almost like an addiction in itself you want more of it and uh and it's not easy you know when when we look at some of the rock stars of our sport now i was fortunate i wasn't in the digital age of social media for most of my career so Absolutely. my pats on the back came from a magazine cover every now and then or, you know, at events themselves. But quite often I got to come home and ground myself and find neutral. Um, but I, I, my fear and, and maybe we, you and I could work something out, but I almost feel like there needs to be something to help um, athletes, uh, whoever they are, 
transition because it's going to be tough because they pick up their phone any time of day and there's a thousand people telling them they're wonderful, you know, and uh, that's addictive in itself. It, it really is. I mean, keeping people grounded. It's funny. I, I get to work with a lot of uh, you know C-level executives and uh, and very successful people. I think I'm the master of keeping them grounded. I remind them daily they are disappointing <laughs> <laughs> in many areas of their life. <laughs> you a lot of work to do, mate. Are you still there? Well, you are. You are really. I mean, <laughs> over here you've had success, but look at the areas yeah. where you are an immense disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> the life's for, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am reminded daily of, yeah. uh, of my many flaws. I promise you. But uh, um, so, so being coached, uh, I, I want to ask this as a coach. I'm very interested. I know that you you had multiple coaching relationships throughout your career, and now that you're on the other side of it, I would love your perspective on on what coaches brought to you as a human, as a, as an athlete. So. I didn't have lots of coaches. I uh, I had a when I started out, I had an overall coach, and his name was Steve Bookberger. And I met him at the gym. and And what I loved about Steve is he understood it. I wasn't an athlete that liked to do long miles. I like speed. Mm-hmm. I was drawn to that kind of work. But what he did well is keep my passion alive. We had fun. Uh, we then had I had a specific run coach with Rob Higley, known as the Guru. Um, and I, he worked with myself, uh, a lot of, of Australia's best middle distance runners. And so I was in a middle distance program for a lot of my early triathlon days. Uh, but then Simon Whitfield, you know, he was with him as well. And he, he ended up winning the 2000 Olympic Games, as you know. Craig Alexander joined us for a little bit, you know. And so we were all coached by the guru with our running. And the thing with the guru or Rob Higley, um, we never did very big miles. We always trained within ourselves. He was almost ahead of his time. I mean, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. In working on form and function and mobility and stability and um, and the general biomechanics of running. And I remember getting frustrated. You know, I was a 20-year-old or whatever going, I need to run more than, you know, a 10 miles on a Sunday for a long run, which would take three to four hours because we'd do plyometrics throughout it. We'd do, you know, it was just this. Wow, yeah. Um, all around Narrabeen Lakes, just north of Sydney there. and. Uh, and we'd run single file, uh, 20 of us in a row, all in time. And because uh, Rob had spent a lot of time in Africa and, and working with the, the African runners in Kenya. And, and so we came back and there'd always be a few Kenyans with us. And we'd all go on these easy runs on a Thursday night. You're not allowed to talk. And he'd just blow a whistle from the back when the front person would peel off to the back. And it was generally just, a, it was a, it gives me goosebumps now because it was a, so ryth- it was the most rhythmical dance you could ever have. And you'd watch these 20 guys, and we call it popping. The right, the, the, it was called popping. So you're popping from one foot to the next and pop, 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 pop. Wow. Um, and you'd do that for maybe 30, 40 minutes. No talking, all in stride, all heads up, all pelvis forward, good posture, light on the feet, but nice. Pop. And, and, you, and you got into each other's rhythm. And, and that was, there was almost, You'd call it like a church on a Sunday type mentality. It's that it was something, it was deeper than just running. And uh, so I got mm-hmm. those kind of things in my early, early pubescent years type thing, you know, uh, development years, my youth and uh, great swim coaches. And he was a, one of Australia's, um, he won the gold medal at the Olympics in the four by, Olympics, four by 100 or whatever in swimming. So um, 
forgotten his name now, but his name will come to me in a moment. And so he was my, so I did a lot of sprint swimming. And again, when you're working with sprint coaches or middle distance for track, which I had, but a sprint coach, it was a lot about feeling the water, power, timing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, or I wasn't thrown into endurance at a young age. I was thrown into doing the three sports well. Um, my biking took me a little while to get going, but then once I got it, it became my weapon, you know, for most of my mm -hmm. career, but I was a slow developer with, and I had some good, uh, good coaching on the bike as well. I went from that in 96 to join a coach by the name of Brett Sutton. And, mm -hmm. and Brett is probably, probably the most successful coach in triathlon. I think, you know, um, I think it'd be hard to debate that. I think, you know, we these multiple world champions from all distances, um, both men and women have done very well with him. And I, he was the Australian head coach at the time. So I joined Brett in 96. And what Brett brought to the table for me was I could go beyond what I thought what was possible. It was a massive step up. I went, I went from this, you know, I was 24 where I'd been doing, I thought I was training hard. I was training right. I was doing some good quality. But I hadn't done that endurance to really be fit enough, strong enough to handle the sport at the highest level. And uh, mm. Brett gave me that for four years. But in that same time with Brett, by the end of it, my passion was really, I was hanging on by a thread. Um, it ended uh, with, uh, we don't need to go into it, but, you know, missing the Olympic team in 2000 Olympic Games. Um mm you know, for Sydney, which was a mile from my home. It was, I'd won the race the year before. I'd had podiums on it. I was ranked number two in the world. And it was a, and uh, I thought I'd actually made the team, but long story, I didn't. And, uh, and that was enough where I was like, either I retire, I was quite bewildered with the whole sport, or I want to keep going. And uh, I got this email, email back then in 2000, I guess it was email, <laughs> from uh, <laughs> my, Simon Whitfield who moved back to Canada because, you know, he was a dual citizen with Canada and Australia. And, and uh, he said, Greg, why don't you come over to Canada and help me get ready for the 2000 Games? You know, you won on the course last year. I could really do it. And I was like, why don't I just go over and spend some time with a mate and help him get ready? Long story short, he ends up winning the gold medal. Um, and that's got its own, you know, really fun highlight story in itself. But yeah. It was that moment that I stayed in Canada and I started working with a guy by the name of Lance Watson who was coaching Simon. And Lance and I worked out a thing. We're basically, he was my coach but more of a consultant. So by this stage, you know, I'm 28, 29, 30. I'd gained some experience in the, around the world of sport. And uh, so I would often write the program and then we'd go over it together. We'd change it. We'd move it. And, and it was my transition to taking ownership of my training and then the final part of my coaching is laura and i going out on our own um, in 2005 where we both took different roles within the relationship and and both in our marriage and, and in our careers and so i look at it as almost a four-step approach and i'm not saying this works for everyone but i i am a huge advocate for having passionate coaches for youth ones mm -hmm. that you know if i was to put on a youth camp here in in boulder First thing we'd do is we'd watch the 89 Ironman and then I'd have Mark and Dave walk down the stairs into the basement here and say, hey, guys, and we'd all go for a 5K run, right? And yep. then we'd watch the 2000 Olympics and then, then would come Simon Whitfield and then something with the Anfordina or whatever. And I'd bring in these guys and educate them on what the sport is about, get them excited about the people that have gone before them and create this real passion 
I think there's mm-hmm. a I think that's incredibly important because that passion is going to be tested throughout your career. So that flame needs to be bright. Um, and then I think you have the the next kind of coaches is more you know maybe more skill development and you know learning your craft and and then you know the next one might be more testing you going beyond and that's where Brett sort of fell in with me and then the next one is you start to consult with um, and so I almost look at it as four degrees <laughs> it's like you you kind of step along and you can learn something from each of them again that's how it worked for me I'm not saying um, it works for every athlete but what are your thoughts on that kind of process uh, well I think that the, the way that you explain that was a a natural evolution of coaching as you developed through your coaching career and it was long term mm. and I think that that's um, that's fantastic there there have been times in my coaching career where I feel like the runway has ended for our coach athlete relationship and, and I've ended uh, but by typically by mutual consent of okay it's time where the athlete sometimes the the journey of the coach athlete relationship it feels right that the athlete should go and get fresh ideas should go and get something different and, and when that happens that to me is fantastic because I feel like I've contributed mm-hmm. I've taught and educated empowered and now the athlete should go and get fresh ideas and in fact a great example of that in many ways was uh was Tim Reed, where he, you know, went on, had a great career. I think he maybe left a, a year or two too early, but um, mm. but we we achieved a lot. And then he was always wanting a lot of autonomy, mm. and I think he drew from me as a, as a sponge as much as he could, and then decided to move on. But when we see each other, we can still reflect and go on from there. So I think that I think that the way that you explain it is is really accessible and I've got a follow-up question I will I'll say this I think that the biggest mistake that I see of athletes who have high aspiration to to do well and it could be an amateur but let's let's keep it at the world-class level is to do what I would call pinball coaching where they go back and forth 18 months with each coach and and at the heart of that I think is the belief either some form of insecurity or um or or a lack of ultimate ownership of the athlete where when things when they they meet adversity things start to go wrong it is very very easy just to and and I'm saying this this is not personal mm. about me but it's around looking at athlete development I seldom see an athlete really get into the thin thin air of world class performance with nine coaches over the course of a nine-year career i I, I never see it i agree and and i think a lot of that is just probably communication to begin Mm -hmm. with and because the coach athlete it's a relationship so just like with your relationship with your spouse or whatever there's almost a dating phase if you like there's a phase that you have to get to know each other and is this the right fit is this going to work long term and communication is key if you want to make this a long-term thing, well, understand that if you're going to work with me, then we're going to look at this next two years, we're going to be doing this kind of work. And then this next year, because I've learned during this dating phase, I've got to know that this is what you're going to need. And and there's, and there's then it becomes a respect thing, like any relationship needs communication and respect. And, and so it's that 
Yeah, and look, I mean, I look at someone like uh, Lance Watson, who was on my, you know, who I mm-hmm. talked about, and who's on my great, show. great friend of mine, great yeah, guy, wonderful man, and doing incredible work. And he said he's been so fortunate to have Brent McMahon, his athlete, and he's coached him now. I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I have to <laughs> realize like it. Twenty five years, or something. two years, or twenty five years. Yeah, and he said it's been wonderful to have had the just the experiment to be able to work with one man from the age of 16 and he's now 40 or whatever and mm. all the way through multiple olympics to setting an ironman world record at one point to you know and, and he said it's i've been able to learn about himself and coaching and because he's had that one athlete to experiment with over over time and i i think that was i think it's pretty i mean it's remarkable i mean you know it's an incredible story in its own right but uh, <laughs> It, it's, it's actually, I wrote a, uh, a short, this is a couple of years ago now, but I, in fact, I think it was in my, my, my second book, The Fast Track Triathlete, of which people can download and read. But um, I, I think I actually wrote about their coaching relationship as an example of an, an amazing thing. It was talking about Lance and saying this is, this is sort mm-hmm. of how, what, a, what an amazing component of it. Um, but uh, I, I think that the... I'm going to ask you this question, but I'm going to actually answer it first, and then I'd love to hear your perspective, which is what would be your one piece of advice for people looking for a coach? Uh, but but I'd like to jump in first and, and provide my thoughts. Uh, so I think that y- you mentioned coaching is a relationship, and it, and it really is, and it, and it takes some time for any relationship to grow, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so I think that it's really important for athletes to – look at multiple coaches just as they would if they were going to buy a car have multiple conversations in fact when a pro comes to me for coaching i always say hey go and talk to a few other people and after my conversation and if i am the right person that's great but make sure that you know rather than by coming because of reputation or anything else so so that's my contribution to that what what advice would you give to athletes that are maybe looking for coaching well i think you you touched on the the one half where i think mm-hmm. the go study educate yourself on the coaches that are out there but the other half to that is study and educate yourself about who you are what are your strengths and what are some of your weaknesses and where do you fit in with those things because i don't think we we do i mean we talked about earlier in the show we, do, we don't self-reflect enough to understand mm-hmm. what am i missing so now, okay, I'm a 49-year-old man. Say I want to come back and do an Ironman at 50, and I'm not going to do this because it's too much time away from family, but how would I approach it? Well, firstly, I've had the greatest coaches in the world on my show. Yourself, uh, Dan Lorang, Dr. Dan Plews, you, mm-hmm. uh, Lance Watson, just Brett Sutton, the whole lot have been there, and, I, and I've enjoyed all of you tremendously. And then, I, But I have to go... You would all bring something to the table, but what am I, what am I at 50 year old? I have a career where I've had 30 years in the sport, but what am I missing? And I kind of go, that's, that's the key ingredient. And then what does that coach bring in for those ingredients that I need? What is missing and, and how are they going to fill it? So I think for me is there's a real self-reflection. And then, like you said, spend the time, get to know, you know, Email, write them, call them. You know, you guys are all approachable, great people um, that that you can learn from. Um, I didn't mention Siri Lindley, another fantastic coach. 
Um, and, and even Sarah True and I were talking about that on a recent podcast. And she said, look, Siri Lindley was perfect for where I was at this point in my career. Then I had Darren Smith at this point, and then she had Joel Filiol and Dan Lorang, and she went through it. And, um, and it makes sense when you know what who you are at that point. You know, Siri Lindley is a phenomenal coach, but she brings in tremendous energy, just mm-hmm. absolute energy. And, you know, depending on where you are in your career, you might need that kind of an input. Um, mm-hmm. a Brett Sutton might bring the, you know what, don't sweat the small stuff. We're not going to talk about any science. We're not going to talk about data. We're just going to do the work. And you might need mm-hmm. that in your life. And that's, but you need to decide what you need um, to get the most out of your coach, I think. Kind of a long answer, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's a great, it's a great answer. If people can't pick apart their, their what what's suitable for them, and then they uh, they need to listen to it five times. <laughs> let let let's talk about your fears, and uh, and I'm going to set this up because we're we're going to get to the now. Talking about you as a, as an executive coach, public speaker, podcaster. Didn't know that was a career, but uh, but I guess it is because huh? we both do it. Um, had this incredible athletic journey. What was the catalyst for you to go out and create this business for yourself? And, and, and secondly, what were your fears in doing so? Oh, well, like anything, there's always that fear of failure. I mean, but that fear of failure is also gives you the anxiety, which then gives you the fuel to actually act. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate of anxiety. I it's the greatest fuel on earth. I don't think we should medicate it. I think it's uh, anxiety is just there because you haven't fixed a problem. There's a problem, you haven't fixed it. That's what anxiety is. Um, mm-hmm. And so what happens is when you when you start something, there's a lot there's a lot to take on. Um, I don't know about you, but I wasn't a massive podcast listener. Uh, no, I, I I knew nothing about audio. I knew nothing about anything, and I just was like, you know what? I'm just going to reach out to people and see if they want to have a conversation with me. Um, it hurts if you ever get a negative. I don't know about you, but I could have 20 wonderful compliments. Greg, you're doing a great job. You get that one going, oh, you know, this, 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 whatever. And you're like, oh, I've gotten better with that. My skin has got a lot thicker. I can handle mm-hmm. it. You start to realize, you know what? It's uh, You go do it then. You know, you, you try doing this and, and give it a go. Because it's yeah. there's a lot to do, um, but I wouldn't change it. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Uh, my consulting side of it, there's this fear that I don't know enough. That I, mm-hmm. you know, you're always self-doubting. Um, that sh- can I help you? Can I can I be the the person that's actually going to help you optimize your life? Which is what I want for you, and I don't want to fail. You know, I want, yeah. I want all to win. So there's that element of fear that if I'm not helping, it's the same with the show, if I'm not helping people, if they're not a great storyteller, if I'm not telling them what they want to hear. But you kind of go, life's pretty short and you better dive in with two feet. If you've got something that interests you, just go for it. And you're always going to get these random people in the world that are going to troll you and put you down or whatever. And you get that in sport, you know, whatever. And you kind of go, it doesn't matter. And that's where you really immediate team i'm a big advocate of relationships with those closest to you and your team that's what matters yeah really heavily invest in that um because people that don't matter they don't matter they don't matter (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, yeah. it's it, it's interesting, uh, and it, it, I can't let this go. But literally, I just recorded a um, uh, this week coming coming out in a couple of days that as we as we record. But uh, every week in our show, by the way, we have a short section that's called Word of the Week, and mm. it can be anything. It's it's a short tidbit of a couple of minutes that I get to pontificate or whatever and you know what the uh that's it's often a phrase rather than a word but you know mm -hmm. we've got a great jingle that goes to it and this week the word of the week is go for it just yeah. go for it yeah. and it's the whole thing it's exactly that premise um but you touched on their relationship so I'm going to jump in getting going with the business uh what I wanted to ask did you have a team of official or unofficial sort of advisors and uh how to set it up or did you just get going and say i'm just gonna see what happens yeah my advisors was youtube youtube and, <laughs> and anybody else that's gone before me uh i'm not the first podcaster out there i'm not the first consultant out there my dad worked as a consultant i guess um you know and if i said i had a, a mentor that'd be my my dad in terms of you know understanding consulting and, and trying to help people optimize themselves. I was brought up in a house where that was, we did that for each other on an ongoing basis. And, and then probably my other mentor would be, have to be my wife, Laura, who's, you know, they say marry somebody that makes your life better, that it makes you a better person. Um, and that's 110% true for my life. Um, and, but when it comes to the specifics of the business, um, for me, that was, Let's just dive in. And it was, uh, you know, I was coaching athletes. That wasn't what I wanted to do because I felt like I was reliving what I'd already done for 30 yep. years. Like I, I just, I feel like I've got this one life and I'm trying to jam as much as I can into it. And uh, it's not to say I didn't enjoy that immensely. Um, you know, when you see an athlete that you've worked with and they hit a goal or even better than mm -hmm. what they thought they could achieve, you just, it's almost a better feeling than what you ever had for yourself. You know what I mean? It's like you get sure. tremendous out of it. But, um, but then that became led more into the consulting and the consulting was largely because I, I could just, people keep asking me questions, <laughs> you know, we're mainly ex-professional athletes or, or, or professional athletes, young professional athletes that want to know, oh, Greg, you know, how do I make the Olympic team, blah, 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 blah. And so we end up maybe meeting a couple of times a month and we talk through things. And, um, and then the podcast was really just the catalyst was when I did some work for NBC for the Kona Ironman, just as an analyst, they flew me up to do that. And in preparation for that, I did, a, a, I reached out to Sebastian Kinley, uh, Jan Fredino, Tim O'Donnell, and long conversations with each of them. And it was specifically the one I had with Sebastian Kinley, where we chatted for about an hour and a half. And it was just insightful and deep and, mm -hmm everything about him getting ready for this race that meant so much to him about 10 days out. I, was like, I just, I hung up and I said to Laura, I should have recorded that. That was just phenomenal. Um, and so that was the real, and I kind of thought about doing podcasts for a while, but that was it. Okay. That's it. I'm going to do this. And uh, yeah, it's scary as hell, isn't it? I mean, when you, those first few episodes, you know, and I was fortunate. I'm very, I don't take it for granted that I was able to have my low hanging fruit were, Olympic champions and you know, yeah, exactly. decent athlete. I did my guests, my first ten guests. I think I had forty world titles or something. You know, with Mark Allen and Dave Scott and Simon Whitfield and Craig Alexander and Macker and all my mates said, "Yeah, well, come on." And and so that was, yeah, I, I did come out swinging, I guess, by having fantastic guests. But that doesn't mean I want to get. I want to be good at this. 
I want to be, I want to improve. And, uh, yeah. and so I always committed to, I would do a hundred episodes, one a week and I'll, be, I'll stay disciplined to that. And, but I don't want to do just athletes. I want to do like you, I, I, the doctors, the scientists, the entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. anybody that will stretch me a little bit. I enjoy that too, because as an athlete, you got to stand on the pontoon with the helicopter above and the crowd around you and the national anthem playing and then the national anthem stops and your heart's boom, 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 boom. I love that, you know, that feeling. And How do you get that? Well, guess what? Do a podcast with a complete stranger that doesn't know who you are. You don't know much about them. You don't know about what they do. Okay. And I love that. I've got to get up and I've got to perform. And it's, uh, I, I get that a little bit from the podcast in doing that. Do you get the same? Are you, is that the same for you? Or Yeah. I, so, so yes. And um, I have, I, I started with the same of we'll get going and we'll see what happens. And I'll, I'll tell you a tidbit of how we got going because it's, uh, it relates to my wife, Kelly, but uh, I've, I've now been in, in front of the sort of camera and and talking and presenting that it's uh, i've i've organically started to be able to do things uh in quite an ad lib way mm-hmm. around the subject that um that it's almost like the experience of where it comes where the excitement is still there but the fear has dissipated yeah. yes and uh, and you feel like you've got confidence from familiarity would be the thing but i go back and the reason i asked you about fear of building the business so firstly I did not have confidence to launch my own business in Purple Patch, and and I think we even touched on that when uh, when you had me on your show. It was I was from Britain, and I felt you know it was a sort of relative class system, etc. But the we decided to start a podcast that was going to be educational, and it was going to be about performance. I remember having a conversation with Kelly, who, to your point, is absolutely someone that makes me a better person across many areas. She said, we should really do it. She said, you should, you should host it. And I said, yeah, I, ne- I need someone. Like, I need a foil. I need to, mm-hmm. it needs to be entertaining. And, and uh, but we want to make it educational. We want to make sure that, you know, I, I deliver my education, not just guess. And we'll do it. And I said, well, how are we going to do it? She said, you're going to get in a room with a microphone and start talking. <laughs> I said, I can't do that. No one's going to listen. And she said, you can and you will just do that. It's just yeah. like you. So our first quite the reverse of you interestingly i went in and recorded the first three four five weeks of this thing with me talking into a microphone mm. and i i was just like this is absolutely absurd <laughs> and uh <laughs> what am i doing and it felt very sort of egotistical but it but yeah. it, it wasn't egotistical it was educational and i and i realized hang on and and from that it, it really built and and of course when so that's I think that's a big part of why our show has grown. There's a lot of irreverence and British stupidity in there because I I, I start to just become myself and just yeah. couldn't help but be silly half the time. So <laughs> yeah, more relaxed and you start just yeah, more relaxed. You know. Start going. Oh well, we're just gonna. I'm just gonna start talking with some of the dicks and nonsense. <laughs> um, so, so I want to ask you with the. I guess before we go on with the, the launch, now that you have successfully done this and, and knowing that you're in this, this let's call it the hockey stick moment of your, your yeah. development as a, to the, the Greg Bennett empire, but um, would you have any advice for people that were thinking about starting their own business? Yeah, I, I think, well, we touched on a few things. Um, mm-hmm. well, I mean, 
I think firstly, and again, we've mentioned this on the show, is I, I think it's a very important that you know who you are. And I've, I've said this before, but I, I, my only concern with people jumping all in, let's go for it like we were determined, is do you have those qualities that you're wanting to go into that business? Are they strengths and are you passionate about it? Because mm-hmm. it's one thing to pull the trigger and go, let's go. But do you have, like for you and I, we obviously both enjoy conversation. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, if you're going to have a podcast, it's probably a good idea that you don't mind having a conversation. One of my weaknesses that I've had to work on is I've got to get better at listening. But I, you know, I'm conscious of that. I write it down and I, I'm becoming a better listener. Um, then when it comes to me coaching and consulting, I have 35 years of experience and knowledge in an area that I, I tend to focus on more, which is the endurance sport side of things. Um, I do, it does branch off that once I'm with a, somebody, it tends to go everywhere as you'd probably understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's this self-evaluating before diving in, but I think honestly, once you have that, when you can tick a few boxes and you don't have to tick every box, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to, I tell my wife this all the time, she's a perfectionist. You don't have to be perfect. Yeah, Nothing is exactly. perfect out there, but if you can at least tick a few boxes, that would at least make me feel better about you jumping all in into something. But, you know, I've had a, a number of young guys that have started podcasts and it's been very flattering. And they said, Greg, we've started it because we heard you started yours and you're having a good time and so we've started ours. Go for it. Why not? Um, and if you've got something to say that is not egotistical, like you said, because no one's going to listen to somebody just rant on about how wonderful they are, but if you've got something that you can give to the world, contribute to the world, the world wants to hear it. You know, so so get out there and do it, whatever that that is. Um, but but again, I you know I, I think finances and all sorts of things pop in my head that again people are going to be fearful of. But you still need to make some of those things that are intact and are in place before being doing anything stupid. So. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually one of the analogies that that I often um, use for people is a they, they have this romantic vision of owning a coffee shop and uh you know the thing they're out there say lovely enjoying coffee but they're actually the people that are sitting behind the counter scrubbing the floors and fixing broken coffee machines so <laughs> i think that's a, there's an element of that to it as well yeah yeah I, I i keep telling laura that with even this this podcast is uh you know i do everything on it i do send it away to get scrubbed for decent audio because i can't stand listening to poor audio but mm-hmm. the the post-show editing the, the all the the bits and pieces. There's a lot I don't love about it, you know, but it's like I feel like you're meant to have stuff that you don't love about it and accept it. Whatever you do, there's going to be parts that, even in being a professional athlete, that, I mean, everybody romanticizes that, the glamour, how wonderful that life must be. Oh, it's, it's just, oh, it's there's like a, a lot story. of rubbish in that. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, uh, and the, you know, but, but I wouldn't change it either. I'm not complaining, but, um, and if my kids want to be professional athletes, I wouldn't stop them by any means. But there's still, it's not always as glamorous as what it looks like. So, so my last big question, and perhaps the most obvious question, one I cannot uh, bypass, athletic mindset. We always talk about the athletic mindset. And in fact, we do a lot of work with people to draw on the characteristics and traits of an athlete to apply then into life to help them with better energy or be more fruitful, more productive, et cetera. So what are the traits and lessons as an athlete that you 
have taken into the, for lack of a better phrase, corporate world? Well, I think it starts with um, understanding your purpose. So again, mm-hmm. that's to me, purpose means aligning passion with, with talents and strength. Um, then, then when you've done that, you kind of go all in. But I think then it comes about the goal setting. Um, and I don't love that whole, I think we've overdone goal setting, but I think absolutely having, a, having somewhere that you want to get to, having some place that you'd like to just helps you create the journey you know, have a guide for that journey. And it's got to be flexible. I'm not saying be so rigid, but at least have that beacon that you're attracted to that, that's, that's guiding you somewhere. Then you start adding the attributes like the discipline, the dedication. You know, um, for me now with two kids and everything else, my time is 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. And then I get an hour to go do physical activity then the kids nap between one and three and I do another two hours work and I do that seven days a week. So I, I work 30 hours a week and I, I have three hours. And, but that's, like, you go up at 4 a.m. I'm like, yeah, it's the most beautiful time in the day. I it sit is, down, yeah. my coffee, I've got my computer, I can do my emails, I can do my work, whatever, you know, it's my time. But it, it takes, I'm in bed by nine, you know, mm-hmm. and I get my seven hours that I know I need. And every now and then there's a, a blowout and I get an eight-hour catch-up sleep. You know, that's my kind of mentality. But it's that discipline because I know where I want to go, you know, and I know how I want this to grow. I, I, I'm loving what I'm doing. I know where I want to go. And there's a real definite to it. And I, and I think that when you have that and you're passionate and all of those things are aligned, you can, you can go places. And even if your goal is, I love the analogy of shoot for the stars, land on the moon, because it really is that put something out there that scares you. Because, boy, embrace that anxiety because it is fuel for life and it's what gets you up at four in the morning, you know, and, and it gets you going. And, you know, have your cold shower or whatever every now and then or do all these kinds of things. There's tons of little things to keep your energy alive. Um, but I would say they're the attributes that, you know, I took from sport and were able to put into, you know, into the work, yeah. I tell you what, the the McDixon family and the Bennett family would have a cracking party with all of us, as long as everyone's done by 8.30. Because <laughs> exactly. I used to love it when, when, when they'd say in Boulder, don't call the Bennetts after 8. And it's like, yeah, don't call us. We're done. You know, it's same, like- as the, same as the Dixons. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we are famous uh, famous in San Francisco. Let's go out. We'll have dinner. We're going to do the Blue Hair special. We'll see you there at 5.30. Exactly. And even earlier, Laura and I have been known to eat at 4.35 whatever just <laughs> I, i'm with you so, so let's do a um let's do a wrap up and and perhaps we can tag team on this to finish off if uh and and we are going to go to two very wordy men right here but um uh you know our 40 minute discussion is now an hour and a half in as as, as it went the other way as well i expected and anticipated it but um this is it we want to give away the keys to the castle on developing an athletic mindset so can we give quick hits, three of them, maybe we can tag team on this, our audience, three tips for world-class performance across sport, work, and life. What are our three quick tips? You're <laughs> going to have to go first. I'm going to throw you under the bus. Well, I, I, you, you have to say find your purpose. It's number one. Number one. You, you, have, you have to start there and finding your purpose is you've got to know yourself. Who are you? What do you want? Are you in control of your own life? 
these are these are big big questions but you can't move on anywhere else if you don't have a bit of an idea of your purpose and it's it's a hard one you could be there see, for a while <laughs> see, we're we're a, we're a good team i'm going to climb on your shoulders because i'll go number 2 embrace the journey and what i mean by that is in fact you know you said uh, shoot for the stars and land on the moon embracing the journey i'd say the mm. the very crucible of all of the rewards all of the um the lessons are going to come from the journey and not the destination and so i would say embrace the journey and immerse yourself in that you've got to have passion for it now, now i'm going to throw you back under the bus for number three i think number three would be okay you've got your purpose and your journey you need your team you need your, your people to share it with it's one thing to be on your journey on your on your own a journey is nothing you need to be able to share it with a with a great team where you know they're supportive for the most part but I think uh, having those team and relationships focus on those. Look at that. That was the whole, we didn't even need to record the rest of it. That was it. That's it. We, we just, we just nailed it. <laughs> quick on our feet, aren't we? <laughs> aren't we good? <laughs> now we're going to spend half an hour just patting ourselves on the back. So, <laughs> well, I, I tell you, I, 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 in all honesty, I could talk to you all day. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I know that our yeah. listeners will really enjoy it. I really, really appreciate it. I, I, um, I'd, I'd like to have you back over the coming months. I think that there's there's more to it's talk about. To, uh, and, and vice versa. I'd love you to have you back on my show. And, uh, you know, you've got that eloquent British accent that just sounds so good too. <laughs> now that I've become an audio man. <laughs> now that you're an audio, you know, uh, I, I was explaining to someone that when we swear in England, it sounds like poetry. It's the only it country. Does. But, it does. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it, mate. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm sorry if I rabbit on a little bit there, but uh, I am enthusiastic. I am passionate, as I as I told you. So It, it, it comes uh, across and it was super. Really, really appreciate it, Greg. And, and stay safe and uh, keep having fun and, and best of luck with the business. Thanks so much. And you too, mate. Cheers. Take care. Well, all I can say to Greg, thank you. A wonderful, inspirational, and really meaningful conversation that was packed with lessons. Now, I recommend you guys head across to Greg's show. You can find it at anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts. It's labeled The Greg Bennett Show. And I think you can tell from our discussion what a great host it will be. So insightful, interesting, really able to listen. You've been working on that, Greg, I hear. And you can also follow Greg on social media. We're going to add all of the ways that you can connect up with Greg in the show notes. Now, next week, guys, you're wanting more conversations and we have your back. We have a very special conversation. What? You said this week was special. It was. Next week, another special conversation. Trust me. Really, I'm trustworthy. But for now, just a simple two-word phrase. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And to all you guys listening out there, stay safe. Keep striving for your own personal excellence. And until next week, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share with your friends and really go the extra mile. Head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to follow, rate, and review the show. Your support 
and your reviews go a long way to increasing our visibility and exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life, but ultimately, just like me and you, thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to the episode resources and all of our programs can be found at purplepatchfitness.com. Cheers.